0: Good morning to you again. Uh, If you could turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter six. uh, That is not Deuteronomy. Give me just a moment. There we go. We will begin in verse four in just a moment. This is a series in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. And I'll say more about this in just a moment. But this sermon... uh, was meant to be three points those three points turned into two or three sermons so we just kind of kind of focus on the first one this morning that's uh, i I kind of love it when that happens when there tends to be more to say than than i have time for so we're just going to move slowly through this particular part of the passage Um, and so this text deuteronomy chapter six verses four through nine will be our text for the next three sundays counting this one Um, and so with that uh, let's be attentive to it together. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you Lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. So as I said, this was going to be one sermon that turned into two and possibly three, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of give away the game right now. What you've got in your bulletin, uh, the the sermon has undergone a lot of changes since since we published the bulletin, and so the, the original title was going to be Ordinary Worship, which is really going to be more the content of the third sermon, but I have adjusted kind of the way I'm looking at this just a bit, and that is this morning, I think a better title for the sermon would be Knowing God or Understanding Idolatry. And then the second sermon next week is going to be loving God. So you see uh, in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God, love Yahweh your God with all your heart, soul, might. So we'll talk about that next Sunday. And then finally, seeing God. So knowing, loving, and seeing was going to be sort of the the three-point sermon I was going to give you today. And each one of those points has expanded into its own sermon. And so we're going to talk this morning about Knowing God or understanding idolatry. And if some of you, when you hear me say that, you're, maybe you're thinking, I'm pretty sure that we've hit our limit with sermons focused on idolatry. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be some insight here for you that we actually haven't talked about before. And so give me a chance. Let's wait and see what the Lord has for us. This portion of Deuteronomy 6 gives to Israel very important information that they need to know. It concerns their God. Fundamentally, you might say, it is the most important information. So much so that that verse, verse 4, has become something like a confession of faith in the Old Testament church. A confession of faith like it was the Apostles' Creed of the Old Testament church. It begins with the word, here. Hear, O Israel. Can we go there, please? Verse 4. Thank you. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And so uh, the Hebrew word there is Shema. And so this whole confession of faith, this sentence, right? Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, is often referred to as the Shema because that is the first word of the sentence. And so, because I feel like we have to do this at least once in the three parts, Shema Yisrael, Shema... Uh, oh, excuse me, I messed it up. Shema Yisrael, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. So, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, right? So, you've got the Hebrew. There, that was free. You didn't pay for that. Um, and so, the command, then, is to hear. Some translations also translate it listen, or even listen up. So, hear what? Well, apparently that God is one. It's really important that Israel understand what we call our doctrine of monotheism, or worship of one God. So he's one, yes. Sometimes it might interest you to know that this text is used by Muslims to object to the doctrine of the Trinity. And so they'll say, right here, look at this, right? In your own book, Christians, God is one, not three. It says so right here. Jesus even quotes it, by the way, if we go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus quotes this same passage. Is that that the next one or no? Oh, okay, sorry. So take my word for it that in Mark 12, 29, Jesus quotes this passage, and he says, "'Pure Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one.'" And I would urge you, if you are ever confronted with such a situation— and someone says, "See, this text here says that that uh, that God is one." You respond by saying, "Amen," because Christians do not believe that God is three, but not one. Christians believe that God is both three and one. But the Trinity or the the doctrine of the Trinity has not yet been revealed in the course of redemptive history. The revelation of God, the Son, enfleshed in Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 40 days after the resurrection has not yet happened in Deuteronomy 6. Or one of the best examples. This is actually the Sunday in the traditional calendar that we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. Right. One of the greatest revelations of the Trinity, the Son is uh, being baptized The Spirit descends upon him as a dove, like a dove. We're not really sure what that means, but the Holy Spirit descends and the Father speaks from heaven. That moment hasn't happened yet. And so the doctrine of the Trinity has not yet been revealed. And so it is still just as true to say now as it was then that the Lord our God is one. Now why though? Why not give a fully orbed, if you will, doctrine of the Trinity in this moment? The short answer is probably because the Lord knows the capacities of his people. And the mystery of that doctrine is not what was most important for them to know at this time. God is a God who will be known. He states clearly and repeatedly from earliest days of, of being with his people that it is his desire, and even even so it is uh, necessary for them that they know him. And so, uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 7 is an example of this. In Exodus 6, verse 7, uh, the Lord tells them, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Right? So, so, the deliverance from slavery out of Egypt. The, if you want to put it this way, kind of a crude way to put it, but the excuse to deliver his people was so that they would know him. And having delivered them from Egypt, the Lord now confronts them with what would be a perennial temptation for them. Namely, the temptation of idolatry. You see, in the ancient world, polytheism, or the worship of many gods was as ordinary as breathing or drinking water. Into that context, the Lord assures and reassures his people, as they have come out of Egypt, right, land of a number of different gods, that in distinction to that, he is one. And it's really hard for us to get inside the heads of ancient peoples, okay? I had an Old Testament professor back in college who said, they might as well have been on the moon. <laughs> That's about how different their culture is from ours. And so getting inside the heads of people, they, um, I don't know if, they, I think it was in the 70s, they had that song, Walk Like an Egyptian. You could walk like an Egyptian, but thinking like an Egyptian in the ancient world would be much more difficult for us. Thinking like an Israelite would be very difficult for us. But what we can see, can acknowledge, is that for Israel, the perennial temptation that keeps coming back again and again and again is idolatry which tended to take shape as the worship of images that represented god or gods so thinking back to psalm 115 which was our sermon text a couple of weeks ago where the lord condemns the worship of wood and stone and that you know these idols that cannot speak or hear or touch or see and those who worship them will become like them And that probably seems weird to most of us, that people would bow down before statues. Kind of weird. And so it's hard to kind of get inside the head of an ancient Israelite and understand what the temptation was there. I mean, because fair enough, it's like in the Old Testament, every time you turn around, they're bowing down before statues or poles or pictures. Or they might have worn amulets with the image of some god on them. Why? The short answer is because polytheism, worship of many gods, is again the air they breathe. So God, specifically addressing that, if you'd like, tells them in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, listen up, Israel. The important thing for you to hear right now is that your god, the one who brought you up out of Egypt where there were lots of gods, is one. And so, while the concept of ancient idolatry can be a bit hard for us to understand, I do think we can get at it with a few concepts that I'm going to share with you this morning. Uh, We can get at it a bit better if we understand three things, okay? Three things I'm going to go over with you. One, the desire for all, A W E. That that is uh, a desire to be impressed, to be overwhelmed, to be amazed. And, and therefore, to make me feel the way I want to feel. To be, to be amazed and impressed by something. Number two, the desire for license, which is something that allows me to get what I want. Okay? So desire for awe, something that makes me feel the way I want. Desire for license, something that allows me to do what I want. And then the desire for results, something that gets me what I want. Okay? One more time, desire for all, what makes me feel the way I want, desire for license, what lets me do what I want, desire for results, what lets me get what I want. So let's start with the desire for all. For all that we might say about the ancient world, it is probably fair to say that the, the, the larger idols were pretty impressive, Okay? So if we can go to the next one, the next slide, I believe. Yeah, so this is an image out of uh, ancient Babylon depicting a parade or a festival. Uh, Think Mardi Gras, but maybe not too hard, oh boy. Where the gods are being carried around by animals. And people are celebrating them and worshiping them as they go by. And it's probably fair to say that these things were pretty impressive to behold. Goldsmiths and silversmiths and similar kinds of tradesmen knew their work really well. It's why at one point in the book of Acts, when Paul's preaching threatens the idolatry, it's the smiths. It's the sort of guild of of goldsmiths, silversmiths, those who work to make the idols and sell them that get really angry. In the incident with the golden calf, probably one of the most famous incidents of idolatry in the Old Testament... You see the people pressuring Aaron, Israelites pressuring Aaron into fashioning a God for them. And they are told, let's go there, uh, Exodus chapter 32, verse four. We're told that he gets the gold from them and the people start worshiping and celebrating. Okay, the people. So notice the word they. So it's the people speaking here. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, So the people start worshiping, start celebrating this golden calf, saying, this is, the, this is the thing that brought us out of Egypt. And look at Aaron's reaction, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar, like a good priest, right? I don't wonder if at this moment what's happening is Aaron is really impressed with what's happening. I mean, look at the effect that this golden calf is happening uh, is, is having on the people. They are celebrating and worshiping. So, what I mean, what do we do? Let's build an altar, right? This thing is really impressive. It's really having an impact. When something stirs us to awe and amazement, we want to honor it. We might be tempted to worship it. A couple of years ago, I uh, got to go to Italy on a student trip with the school. Uh, trip for students at the school, and I got to chaperone it with Daniel Moore and, and some others. And while we were in Rome, we got to see the Pietà, which is a sculpture uh, by Michelangelo of of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding the the dead body of Jesus in her arms. And it's really stunning. First of all, second, it's much bigger than I thought it would be. I mean, it's huge. Like it's, I mean, if Mary and Jesus were both giants on the earth, then. I mean, it's, it's you, you look up at it; and it's it's magnificent. It was at that moment that I think I sort of got it, or had some insight into idolatry. I didn't uh, ancient idolatry I didn't recognize before. Not that I thought that like the statue was Jesus or like actually Jesus or whatever else, but the sculpture stirred in me a real sense of wonder. It really was something to behold. And okay, there's, there's always a, a temptation that's going to come with that to, if I can put it this way, to worship the thing that makes you feel like that. Right? To, to worship the thing that makes you feel that way. There was something really kind of mysterious and mystical and powerful that for, for a moment I thought maybe I understood a little bit better the temptation that stirs up kind of feelings of spirituality and and mystery when we behold something grand. Do you see? And what I'm I'm offering you is, I I wonder if that's part of what this temptation was for Israel. They wanted a visual experience of God that left them in awe and wonder. Okay? And what we're going to see in a moment is, is because the the pursuit of kind of making the golden calf and worshiping it was rooted in boredom, right? Where's Moses gone? We're tired of waiting, right? Give us something that'll amaze us. The closest parallel I can think of today with this is is perhaps, perhaps it might be possible that some would feel tempted to feel closer to an image of Jesus than to Jesus himself, whether that image shows up on TV or in artwork. So, so to, to feel closer to Jesus or that those things provoke a kind of spiritual intimacy rather than to know Jesus Christ as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And beyond that, we, we know instinctively, I, I talked about this this morning in Sunday school, we, we know instinctively that if something leaves us in awe and facilitates and as a sense of wonder, it's hard to put this any other way. We love it. I mean, We, really, we develop a kind of love or attachment to it. And, and look, at that point, if something leaves you in awe, amazement, wonder, makes you feel deeply spiritual and mystical, you will hold on to that thing so tightly. Like some of you are wondering right now if I was just trash-talking the chosen. You're fixing to get real defensive about it. Why? Because I'm messing with something that's been a source of wonder for you. If something stirs your heart to awe and wonder, you will get defensive about it. And that doesn't mean it's wrong, but you will get defensive about it ten times out of ten and twice on Sunday. This is why people fight over worship or fight over worship music. Because once something has stirred you to awe, you might not know how to worship without it. Something to think about. Something to think about. So the first thing, the desire for awe, right? I'm trying to use that to try to get at what is it that led Israel to bow down before statues, okay? So, and, and one of the things I'm, I'm offering to you, this aspect of wanting to be awed or amazed visually, right, with, with God. And think second commandment, God invisible, that's where we're going next. Second, the desire for license, that is, an idol is attractive I'm, I'm, again, thinking of Joe Israelite saying this. An, uh, idolatry is attractive. Bowing down before the statue is attractive. Why? Because the idol lets me do what I want. Okay? This is probably even easier for us to grasp. That the worship of idols gave our fathers right in Israel permission to do what they really wanted to do while still appearing to be very spiritual, dignified, wise, religious, etc., Let's go back to the golden calf, right? Verse 1. Uh, Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. So the people see what? Moses delayed. And that's when they gather themselves together, tell Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They were glad to be out of Egypt. But let's get on with the party already. We're free. We're not slaves anymore. We are out of Egypt. Let's get the party going. And idolatry often tempts us, especially, listen, when you have to wait on God. Oh, waiting on God is really hard. That's when a lot of temptation comes in, when you just have to wait. It's interesting, then, that we get really easy to tempt because we can't be made happy immediately in the precise ways we want to be made happy. So, so what? What's their solution? Going to verse 2. Yeah. Make this thing for us, Aaron. Yeah. Aaron said to them, Then take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them all to me. So they responded accordingly. Bring it all to Aaron. Verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. They were going to get to their party. And they were going to get to hang on to their spirituality. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow there'll be a feast to Yahweh. Holding on to the right name. Right? and the right practice, the right sort of religious language. And then verse 6 says something maybe even more amazing than that. What did their worship look like? They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. So they got to play. They got to have their party, right? Whatever that means, they rose up to play. I don't want you to miss the significance that idolatry is often rooted in this desire for license. Can we get on with the eating and drinking and playing already? I will give my heart to whatever allows me to to, to start doing that. I am reminded of a pastor in our presbytery who once told me that a young man came into his office and said, You know, Pastor, I think I'm going to become a Roman Catholic. I, just, I think that's the next thing for me. I think I'm going to become a Roman Catholic. I, I think uh, Rome just looks really attractive, and I just wanted to let you know. And the pastor wisely thought for a moment, smiled, and said, what's her name? <laughs> Does she have a name? This young lady who's a Roman Catholic that you're very interested in. <laughs> and he was right, by the way. <laughs> Point, we're always tempted to religiously follow The thing that will allow us to do what we really want. Okay, So I would ask, how often is that the root of our unbelief? There is stuff I want to do. God said no. And his way calls me to crucify that thing. So I will find a way of life that lets me do what I want. People invent their own designer religions all the time, y'all, and the reason is usually because if I am the designer of my own religion, that means I am the god of my own system, and so I'm allowed to do whatever I want, okay? So this is the second way that idolatry tends to manifest itself in ancient Israel, and obviously, if you can't see it still with us, the the temptation for Israel, now I, I know what you might be thinking, you're like... Well, if you wanted to go and do your own thing and reject what Yahweh had said, why not just go do it? Why this trouble with a statue? And and the short answer is, that still allowed them to look very dignified and spiritual and religious, which in that time and culture mattered a great deal more. Oh, but I don't wonder if we still dream up the same way of accomplishing the same things in our own, right? I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. So third, the desire for results. Okay? A desire for, to be left in awe or wonder, a desire to do what I want, or third, a desire for results. Israel got their results, didn't they? They got to silence their boredom. We're waiting on Moses. Where'd he go? We don't know. And their impatience, they got to get on with it. They got to get on with telling a story of how this all happened. I mean, isn't that significant? These are your gods who delivered you from Egypt. Why? Because we're tired of waiting for Moses. And I know the again, I know the idea of bowing down before a statue sounds really strange, but I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment that there's a farmer in ancient Israel, so after, you know, post Deuteronomy, across the Jordan, into the promised land, living in the promised land. we'll, We'll call him Mordecai, just for fun. And Mordecai is a decent man. He worships the God of Israel. He loves his wife, he's a good father. He's a hard worker, but times have been really hard and his fields and their planting are just not performing like they used to. And that's no laughing matter. Sure, he and his wife have some food stored up, but how long can you survive on that if things go bad? In all reality, life in the ancient world was that you were, you were always just one bad harvest or one bad storm or one bad war away from starvation. And things for Mordecai were looking pretty bad. Rain was falling, sure, but for some unknowable reason, the crops were not healthy. They were not doing well. Between some infestations and some trouble with critters and some bad decisions he made during the planting season, things were just not looking good. And so one evening, he is at Ye old Jerusalem Tavern sharing his sorrows and frustrations with the guy next to him, and he says, I am really scared. I've... I've made some critical errors. Things are not looking good for me and my family. I've prayed, of course, but nothing seems to be happening. And the fellow at the tavern says, look, look here, Mordecai. You and I are both decent, God-fearing men. And we both know Yahweh's been good to us. And I'm not saying the Gentiles know God better than we do. That's ridiculous. All I will tell you is that I was having troubles like yours not too long ago, and in a moment of despair, I remembered, let's say, Osiris, god of the fertile fields in Egypt. Dude, do you remember how beautiful the fields were in Egypt and how we always had everything we needed? And I'm, I'm no idolater. I'm, no, no, I'm not, and I'm not saying you should be either. All I'm saying is that I'm not going to turn down help where it's available. All I'm saying is I've got a small image of Osiris around my neck or in my home and I greet it in the morning and I'm just, I'm just saying I've not had any problems since. You can, you can get your hands around that, can't you? I mean, a little bit better than just why the attraction of statues. I'm taking some liberties there, obviously, with how these conversations might have gone, but do you begin to see how something like that could be really tempting when the work of your hands is not prospering? when you are getting increasingly desperate, and when the heavens seem silent to your pleas for mercy. And in those moments, you are most vulnerable to the psalmist's rhetorical question, whom have I in heaven but you? Except it's not rhetorical. You start supplying answers. Maybe there aren't some answers fit for your situation. So what, what is the temptation there? It's the desire for results at any cost. Whatever gets results must be good. This is the doctrine of pragmatism, and it's influenced a lot of Christian practice in the West. Whatever gets results must be good. It shaped our programs. It shaped our evangelism. God help us, it shaped our worship. Whatever gets the results we want must be the work of God. But can you think of a better example of putting God to the test, something explicitly forbidden in Scripture, by the way, Uh, When you think of Jesus being tempted by Satan uh, and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet this is the temptation for us that we want to design a test for God and say, very well, Mr. Almighty, here's what we need. And if you pull it off, we'll let you be God. Right. The only problem is that's foolishness. If God were to submit to your test, he's not worthy of worship because at that point, you're God, you're calling the shots. You're bossing God around. You're telling God what he's going to do. And you are expecting God to be at your beck and call, submitting to your requests. And by the way, if he doesn't submit and fails your test, well, then you can turn your back on him. But you will on the last day give an answer for why you thought you were qualified for his job. So, the people of Israel needed to hear that God was one, and only one. So that they, when the moments of impatience or temptation came, would not fall victim to idolatry. So let me put it into a question for you today. Are you afraid to be in awe? That was the first point, about being in awe or wonder of God. I will say, let me say this first, before we get there. First, just to Christians, if you're a Christian, don't ever apologize for being left in amazement and wonder at what you find in God's Word. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to talk about how he would sometimes start up conversations with folks he knew or with folks he didn't know very well, and he would say, are you a Christian? And if they said, yeah, yeah, of course. Why are you asking me? He would say, no, I I don't think they've got it yet. He said, because then others I would talk to, or you're a Christian, they would say, yeah. Can you believe it? Like me, me, right? As much as your heart is hardwired to chase after the things you love and that leave you in awe and wonder, I think sometimes, if we are honest, we are afraid to be in awe or wonder. And maybe I'm just talking about myself, but I will go ahead and briefly indict my generation, infamously known as the Millennials. My generation, we grew up around so many things that were or that seemed like sales pitches. Okay? It seemed like everything could be reduced to a sales pitch with a hundred promises attached of how it was gonna make your life better. So, So every product, every company, even like every charitable organization, every restaurant and every church and every religion was making a really cleaned up and shiny sales pitch and trying to present a really nice, warm image. Everyone was out to impress and to sell you something. And my generation got burnt out with that, but we went to the other extreme in a lot of cases which is a kind of hyper cynicism and just dismissed anything that even remotely sounded like a sales pitch. And so we've tried to, the result has been in some cases, we've tried to like turn off our circuits for awe and wonder because that's how suckers get sold things. They get impressed with what you're selling. They get hopeful, they get interested, and then they get sold and they get fooled and they get disappointed. That's the bigger one. So let me, I'm just saying all that it was kind of a little tangent to say do not fear awe and wonder. Speaking to myself as much as to anyone else. Because the alternative is cynicism that really leaves your life rather dry and miserable. I remember sharing a story with someone recently when they asked me about a particularly difficult time in my life uh, when, I, when I doubted everything about my faith and And they said, what what kind of brought you back to to faith? And the answer is a whole lot of things. It's a much longer conversation I'd I'd love to have with any of you that want to sit down and have it. But let me just give you kind of one of the most kind of decisive moments. That there was an especially significant turning point for me at the close of a church service. We were singing on Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. I am bound, I am bound for the promised land, right? We've sang it here before. And uh, some of you heard me tell this, but, but in front of me there was an elderly woman, probably in her 80s, maybe her 90s. And on either side of her were two younger women, probably in their 40s, 50s, somewhere in there. And as we sang, the, these two women on her side were, were holding her up like she, she really couldn't stand. And so they were holding her up while we were singing, I Am Bound, I Am Bound for the Promised Land. And I thought it was, you know, just maybe she's feeling weak. Maybe she couldn't stand, some kind of physical, medical reason. And so a few moments after the benediction, I was kind of shocked. She, she got up <laughs> and walked away. And I said, what? okay, I guess she's fine. And so I asked one of the women who had been holding her up, I said, is she okay? I mean, do we need to get her some help? And the woman replied, oh, she's fine. She's really okay. She just really wanted to stand and sing that song. And, and she was having trouble standing. Because a couple of weeks ago, she just lost her husband of 45 years. And here she is singing with all her might. I'm bound. I'm bound for the promised land. She can barely stand. And her sisters on either side are holding her up so she can worship. Now... If you're not a Christian, you might be mentally working on ways right now to dismiss my story, and that's fine. Because I get it, it sounds nice and sentimental, and it's psychologically comprehensible and classifiable. And I would humbly ask you, why are you so afraid to wonder? Are you so afraid to let your heart be amazed by the comforts of the resurrection of the dead and the hope of the life everlasting? Do you have the courage to doubt those doubts? Hear, O Israel. Listen up, listen to this. This is really important. Because in this land, there will be many, many, many gods that will compete for your heart and for your affections and for your worship and for your awe and for your wonder. But Yahweh is one. And this one God of the universe came down in flesh so that your heart would be forever awed and left in wonder by this announcement. That by faith in his name your sins are forgiven. That there's a seat at the banquet table of heaven with your name on it. That your name is son and daughter. And that you will live forever. Come behold the wondrous mystery. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Father, give us faith to believe. And to confess and to be conscious of the ways, uh, to put it this way, that, that idolatry sneaks in. Conscious of the ways that we start to chase after the things that we are longing for and not finding our joy, our delight, our, our pleasure in you. And so we ask that you would be glorified, God, not to our name, not to us, but to your name, O Lord, be the glory because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Keep these things on our lips until the very last day. In Jesus' name, amen.